Hello, and welcome back to The Answer is No. I'm your host, Alexis Clements. For our last episode of our first season, we wanted to do something special. We figured we'd spend some time sharing a few of our own stories. So in this episode, I'll be interviewing Ali Cotterell, my co-producer and the editor of this podcast, who also happens to be an accomplished filmmaker. The answer is no. I got to know Ali a few years back when I was early in the process of making my first film. Ali had much more experience than me in the field, having worked as an editor for years, and she was also well into working on her own film, a documentary called North Pole, New York, that focuses on one of the first theme parks in the U.S. and its fight to stay open. Allie ended up editing my film and was a fantastic collaborator who was generous with the tips she picked up over the course of her career. So often in the earlier episodes of this podcast, guests have mentioned how important it is to have people in your life that you can talk with about the messy details of building a life in the arts. And Allie has been one of those people for me. Statistically speaking. We hear a lot about how Hollywood and the film industry fall short in so many ways when it comes to celebrating and supporting filmmakers of color, as well as women, trans, and queer filmmakers. While we've seen the beginnings of change on screen, the reality is that the pace of change has been slower behind the camera. According to the 2020 Hollywood Diversity Report by UCLA, in 2018, only 7% of the top-grossing films were directed by women, and only 19% were directed by people of color. In 2019, while women made some strides directing 15% of the top-grossing films, directors of color had fewer opportunities, directing only 14% of those same films. Having each been through the gauntlet of directing and releasing an independent film as queer women, both Allie and I can speak to the many hurdles that you have to find your way over to reach the finish line on a feature-length film. We'll dig into some of that in this episode, as well as Allie's path into the field. And just a note that we recorded this conversation back in September of 2020. Let's start the show. So can you tell me a little bit about what, like when you were a kid, what did you imagine that you would do when you grew up? When I was a kid, I wanted to be an inventor my whole childhood, probably. Did you invent anything? Nothing like really <laughs> amazing. I did do like the local invention convention at my school, which was just like a bunch of nerds um, making stuff. But oh my God, what did you present at the invention convention? I made a book that was like, um, it was a travel book, but then you could just take out whatever chapter for wherever you were going so you wouldn't have to carry like a heavy book. People still do that. They talk about ripping out half of the travel book when you're walking around. I mean, I wouldn't call it genius or anything, but I actually did learn a really good lesson from my first invention convention, which was another girl who was like also eight. She made like this really amazing like robotics hamster feeder. It took a lot of, you know, robotics knowledge or whatever. And then the guy who won was some kid who he made the tray table that's on a plane that flops down for your car yeah. seat, which is like, who cares? And he won because the guy who was the judge was like, loved his brother. It was like, oh my God, you're so-and-so's little brother, you win. So I guess I really did learn a lesson there about like nepotism and, and white guys bringing up other mediocre white guys. That's definitely 
uh, lesson learned young. That's real. That's real. And it's it's painful how relevant that remains in the world today. Obviously, you had some kind of creative streak. But in terms of the adults who were in your life, what did they want for you when you were a kid? They wanted me to be like a doctor or a lawyer or uh, something like that. Super straight and narrow. There are a lot of accountants in my family. Like I brought home a drawing one day and my mom was like, it's okay. We don't have artists in this family. Like we don't, we don't really do that. And like, whatever, I can't draw. So not only did she basically tell you your drawing was no good, she also (laughs) dismissed any hope that you had of pursuing an artistic career. My mom's awesome. (laughs) She was like super supportive in the, in the end, but, um, she had no model for, for, you know, working as an artist at all. And there was no model for that. And that's real. That's true for a lot of kids. At what point did you decide that you were going to make a go of it? I went to Oberlin College undergrad. We thought I would, like, be a writer of some sort. But, um, yeah, I also, like, was trying everything. Playing in bands, performing as a drag king. Uh, And then, yeah, later on, like, maybe my junior year is when Final Cut came out. So I started shifting into film. And then I went to Portland, Oregon, and I lived there for a few years, and I was performing as a drag king and um, had all sorts of day jobs, mostly like in like bartending or restaurants or stuff like that. And then I decided to go back to film school full time when I was like uh, 25. One of the things I'm super curious about when I started to go into high school, pursuing my interest in the arts was also about accessing what I thought of as like the weirdos. Like it was also an access point to a culture that I wanted. Well, that's a good point. I mean, I started a literary magazine in high school with some friends because um, the literary magazine turned down my friend's queer poem and we were like, screw this. And so a bunch of us did our own literary magazine that was all the stuff that they wouldn't print in the other one. So there was queer stuff, stuff about drugs, things that, you know, 17 year olds really are figuring out. And I mean, the other reason is like, you know, I picked up a guitar for the first time at 17 because I was like, because I saw the movie All Over Me. All Over Me is like a seminal queer classic. I think it came out in like 96, 97. And it's about um, these two girls that are friends in high school and one of them's queer and the other one isn't. And they have sort of an ambiguous relationship. And I think a a lot of people can relate to that if they were closeted in high school. And I was like, you know, girls especially queer girls would, would like it if I played guitar. So that's why I learned it. It wasn't a super higher lofty like goal at the beginning. <laughs> I can point to at least a few turns in the path of my life that were driven by romantic aspirations. <laughs> it's a great motivator. But how did you go from playing guitar and being a drag king to film as your medium of choice? Yeah, I think it was a perfect combination of factors. I was always a film nerd. As a kid, I remember thinking, oh, maybe I'll be a film critic or something. And so I think it was kind of a kind of a perfect storm with where the technology was. Yeah, like Final Cut came out when I was an undergrad. And then by the time I went to film school five years later, you know, YouTube was launching and ever, the sort of all the digital possibilities were opening up. And I just thought like, I just thought that was great. You know, before that, film school was monstrously prohibitive. It was only on film. It wasn't digital. And, and I don't know that I would have considered it. And it just felt like a new, a new possibility. When you looked forward into the future and you were like, I want to try to make a go of this. I want to have my day job in the film industry and also do my creative practice in the film industry. 
did you imagine yourself living a comfortable life? Like, did you imagine, oh, eventually I'll be able to make enough income to kind of pay my bills and also eat out at restaurants and go for trips? After the first year, I remember in a class writing something that said, I don't know why I thought that going to film school, it would magically merge. My creative practice and my job would just magically merge just because I did this. They didn't, you know. Like, I think that's a great way to phrase it because I think that I had magical thinking in my 20s too about I my my version of magical thinking as I was coming into theater and writing and performance. I just somehow thought that I would get enough success in a decade that I would get all the grants and I would have enough demand for my work that somehow I would be able to make the ship float without having to do as much work outside of it. And I feel like that's so often why I emphasize to people that the statistics show that most artists don't live like that even well into their career, because I think it it's a it is a form of magical thinking that I think is subliminally given to us oftentimes if we had the opportunity to study these things as undergrads. Part of the sort of subtext there is like, oh, eventually you're going to be able to make a go of this. Yes, I think that's very much part of the magical thinking. And I found it um, a little bit upsetting maybe at 25 that that wouldn't be the case. But then but then I didn't actually after that because, you know, I make an, I make enough at my quote unquote day job, which is also in film. Um, so I don't think of them as, su- as super separate, but I make enough that I have space to do my art and that's really all I wanted. So the biggest thing that changed my thinking was realizing that people at every level are dealing with stakeholders and funders. And, you know, in some case, the stakes are very high and it's kind of a blessing in some ways not to have that on your project, especially if you want to do anything outside of the box at all. Yeah, I completely agree. You mentioned something that that for you, it's not always super clear what your artistic practice is necessarily versus your day job, that they overlap and intertwine in some ways. So I work as a film and video editor, and then I'm a documentary filmmaker, so I make my own work as well. And um, so my own films, it's super clear. I've uh, I've never done one that had a, like a major funder that had any creative control. They were totally DIY. Um, and then with my work that pays my rent um it's like sometimes it's documentary features and a lot of times it's um like more commercial work and so you know I'll work with people like I'm the editor on some commercial project the producers on that project we're working on that and we'll be talking about our films you know like they're also doing their own projects I don't know it's not like I'm like an accountant who then makes films like there's a lot of stuff that's merged when I'm looking at jobs uh editing jobs it's like People say like one for the meal, one for the real, which is like, you know, you take like a high paying one and then you take one that you like. And um, I guess is how you think about it. But I guess if, you know, the triangle, I guess the triangle I would think is like, do I like the client? Would I put it on my website? Does it pay well? And like, I always, if you have all three, that's amazing, but you often have two. So it's like, you know, I like the client and I'll put it on my reel, but it's like a lower paid thing, but I love this project. Or it pays well and I like these people, but this is never going on my website. You know, like you usually get two. You usually get two. If you get all three, that's awesome. If you get one, just say no. 
<laughs> That's a good, good advice about saying no. Yes. So let's get into it. Let's start with your films. Were there any instances where you were looking at ways of distributing that work or ways of sharing that work that people were asking for things that you were just like, this is, this is a solid no for me? Yeah, so for my film, North Pole, New York, it's a feature. And when I was trying to figure out, like, I always knew I wanted to do sort of a hybrid with self-distribution, but I did think I wanted to get a broadcast deal. I would talk to a couple filmmakers and it was so disheartening to talk to them because they would be like, yeah, I signed on with this distributor and my movie is everywhere and I got nothing, you know. First of all, I love that you're talking about the fact that you talked to other filmmakers about the distributors before you made any kind of choices. How much is that network of people in your life crucial to your decision-making process? It's number one. And what does that network look like for you? So I have a network of editors that we recommend each other for other stuff. There were always people that were more senior and more junior. I would stay on their radar as they were moving up so that they could send stuff when I was coming up. And then as I was moving up and stopped taking jobs, I had junior people that I passed things to. I also have motion graphics people that I send things to and sound designers because they get hired after me. And then I sort of have a network of producers that I've worked with. And then for my own films, I'm a member of like several different clubs. Literally, those groups are, are so great because any topic like this, like, you know, I'm making a documentary about whatever. Do you know anything in this style? And they'll send like 10 recommendations of stuff you can watch for that style. X distributor contacted me. What should I do? You send it out to, you know, I send it out to that list and 10 people will come back and be like, they're awesome or they suck or it's just such a big network. Any of those questions they can answer. So many filmmakers have their day job in film. There's a lot more transparency, at least behind the scenes, about things like what's your rate? How do you get paid? What does your distribution deal look like? In the visual arts or in theater and other areas of the arts, those things are very opaque a lot of the times. And I feel like, do you think that it is because you do this as your day job that it's easier for you to talk about those things? So what's interesting is that my film groups every year, all of them do a rate survey for our day jobs. And then it comes out and it says exactly by location, age, gender, race, every de category of what you're editing, what everyone makes, and you can crunch the data for exactly what you're working on and see where you are in the scale and if you need to raise it. And I feel like we all raise up together and it's actually really great. For filmmakers with like distribution deals, I wish there was the same thing where I could be like looking up this distributor and being like, this person got 10 grand from them, this person got a million from them, this, you know, there should be an equal da database. There's such a good database for work, like day job stuff, and not as much for distribution stuff. With documentaries in particular, but with films in general, there's like, there's just this idea that there's like magic to the number. And also, you make a movie about something, that topic ends up in the news, and now your movie is worth a lot more. That is a thing that happens. So it's really hard. I think it would be really hard to get a database. I feel like that gets at the core of this podcast, right? It's like the difference between freelance work or stuff that's considered a job versus how we actually get support for our creative or artistic projects. I see it over and over again, where people are totally fine to talk about their hourly rates for a commercial gig. But if you want to get at how much they're earning from their artistic practice, things just go totally blank. 
My suspicion after writing about this topic and talking with so many people about it for so long is that fear and shame play a big role in what's going on in that desire not to disclose. So for instance, one of the first things that I wrote about this topic was on the 2012 Whitney Biennial. I knew that the artists who were exhibiting by and large were not being paid and I just needed to do my journalistic due diligence and call them up and confirm that. And what I kept encountering over and over and over again is that artists were really reluctant to tell me that they hadn't been paid because they were worried that they were the only ones. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I see the psychology of that for sure. Like, it's interesting listening to you talk about distribution deals because I I ended up deciding to go with a distributor for my film because I'm new to the field. But... Even when I hear you say, oh, distributor deals, they're not good, like I start, like I can feel my skin, like I can feel the goosebumps starting to come up a little because I'm like, oh, damn, did I not negotiate enough? But I, I'm just saying that to illustrate the fact that that, that shame and self-doubt creeps in so much when there is opacity. Yeah, I, I think there is a lack of transparency um, in these deals. But I mean, I could just tell you what my deal is. Just tell me what your deal is. So for me, when I went into the distribution deal, part of what I was thinking about was, will this get to the audiences that I want it to get to? Because this was my first film and it was very much a passion project. It's a film about queer women's spaces. And I am a queer woman. I am involved in those spaces. And I care deeply about the subject. The academic market was the one chance that I really had to, to recoup some of the costs So that was the reason that I decided to go with an academic distributor, because it might help me if I got to go to the University of Kentucky, maybe while I'm there, I could find a local gay bar or, you know, queer space and screen the film at the same time. You know, in the end, the distributor takes the cut, the the larger cut for most of the academic stuff for like university sales and academic sales, which is my main goal and working with them. They take 70 percent and I get 30 So that's, and I've, you know, it's hard to say, could I have negotiated a better deal on that? I was a first time filmmaker and I didn't feel like I had much leverage behind me, but this is, I decided to take the deal because they were going to give me an access point that I didn't have. Are you going to say what your movie costs and what you plan to make back or have made back or what your best ambitions were for what you would make back? The total cost for the film was about $45,000 in real dollars. Well, I put in $30,000 of my own money in savings or money from my day job. And that was split over the course of the six years that I worked on the film. And then I raised the other 15000 through individual donations or crowdfunding or that, that small grant that I did get. So far, the film has made back a little over $4,000. How many months in are you? You're like, well, there's a freaking pandemic too. I'm about eight months in to having released the film, but obviously all the gigs that I had lined up from April forward were all canceled and a good chunk of those would have helped bring the revenue up. And in terms of my revenue goals, like, or in earned income goals, the, the goal was just to get some of that money back so I could start my next project. That's the, always been the primary goal. Yeah, exactly. I think that's right. Can you do yours like really quick? Like how much did it cost? How much did you earn? 
you know, when you apply for grants and stuff, they always say like to put on like the full actual budget. And so when we would put that on, we would say that it was 200,000 in-kind donations, which was like our labor and everyone else's labor. And that's just like sort of this magic money that never existed and will never come. Um, and then in hard cash, it was 80,000. And we raised 40,000 and then we put in 40,000. So um, we raised like uh, maybe 15 during production in like a, a ton of small donations um, over years. It was 15 and then our Kickstarter was 25. Uh, and that's 40. And then we put in 40 over five years. So we put in like 10 up front and then like whatever that is, like six grand a year. And, and it wasn't until I was like adding it up that I was like, oh my God, that's like, we put in a lot of our own money. I had that same experience when I looked at the budget at the end, because I was like scrimping and saving on the side. And it seemed like, God, how am I going to pay these bills? Or I just, well, okay, I just have to pay this if I want to get to the next stage. And I never, like, I'm so glad I kept the budget because, yeah, only at the end was I like, damn, where did that money even come from? Yeah, and, like, the 10 grand, we didn't just have 10 grand sitting around. Like, the 10 grand up front, we, um, we took on a roommate for here for, like, a year. Like, and I, like, live here with my wife. Like, it was like, oh, man. Never again. <laughs> I'm too old for roommates. We went totally indie, so we did, uh, with the distribution, so we did um, theatrical for six weeks in New York, uh, and I booked that myself by, like, cold calling places. And then we had our own website where we sold DVDs and merch. And the reason that we went that route is because the audience for this movie was older. It was mostly boomers, and they... They were still, like, everyone asked for DVDs while we were in production. They were like, where's the DVD? Where's the DVD? And I was like, wow, okay. Like, it's amazing that we are going to be able to make money off DVDs in 2018, which is when my movie came out. So we made, let's see, like, uh, 12000 off DVDs maybe, and then, like, 8000 maybe off merch. Um, but, you know, a lot of that goes right back out to the cost. You don't really clear a lot on the merch. And then... Uh, maybe like 10 or so off theatrical. So I think we put in 40, got back 30 probably. And then, of course, all of our labor <laughs> was free for years. Oh, and then digital, it's like, I mean, it's in the hundreds. It's not in the in the thousands. It's, yeah. But every time that I see someone like bought it for like eight bucks, I'm like, I love you. <laughs> it's just like, thank you. <laughs> Well, and I love that you I love I'm just going to stay on one point that you brought up a little bit earlier because this was a learning curve for me. And when I wrote the first budget for my film, I knew that I should include some of my labor and I knew that I should inflate it beyond what I thought I might actually be able to cover in real dollars. But the first budget I wrote was $80,000. And to me that was a staggering sum of money. I was like, I will never see this much cash and like I don't know how I'm going to get that amount of money. And I, I was looking for a fiscal sponsor and I was looking for some help with grants and people saw that number and they were like, nobody will take you seriously if you write $80,000 on your grant applications. They'll just think you're making like the lowest budget thing ever. You have to put 250 or 300 for a doc at the minimum. So I did. Yeah. So I bumped it up to 300 because that satisfied the people who were helping me and 
I needed the fiscal sponsor. And, and it was so interesting because, you know, you shop that budget around, you send that to everybody. But this is like a part of the smoke and mirrors that is persistent throughout the arts, right? Is like, we all know that that's not real. And I was finishing the film and I was, uh, you know, with the people who were working on the sound and the color at the end, both of whom teach. And, you know, we were talking shop at a certain moment in during that process. And they were like, oh, yeah, you just need like 40 grand to make a movie. And I was like, right. Like, why is there this enormous disconnect? And I know, I like, look, I'm somebody who's all about valuing people's labor and putting a dollar amount on people's labor, whether or not, you know, we're able to achieve those rates or not. But what a phenomenal difference between the this sort of, like, image we project through these grant applications and these budgets and the realities and it it makes it seem unattainable that's like even the amount of money that i i was able to put into this doc is totally unattainable for an enormous swath of people so the idea that i would have had to have made seven times as much money in order to it's just staggering the difference between perception and reality yeah every duck filmmaker i know has their la la land 300k and up budget and then they have their actual cash budget which is like usually 50 to 100 or sometimes like even less i just think for indie filmmakers that hear 300,000 i just want them to know that that's like 200,000 of it is like in kind and mm-hmm. and even even like saying that like I put forty grand into my movie. If I heard that and I was twenty five, I would be like, I'm not ne- I'm not gonna have forty grand. Like if you think about over ten years, mm-hmm. you put in like maybe up to four grand a year. Then it's mm-hmm. like, I mean, it's still like out of reach for a lot of people, but it's not. It seems more possible, I guess. The goal of this entire project is not just about saying no. It's about the fact that when you learn how to say no and when you learn what a bad gig is, it frees you up in order to be able to say yes. But I'd love to hear one or two stories of saying yes. I applied to a whole bunch of festivals. I got into Independent Film Festival Boston and I really wanted that one and it was coming up pretty quickly and it was like one of the ones I wanted. I was gonna say yes. But I remember telling someone that and them saying, like, oh, what you have to do is, like, you know, call all the other ones, like, whoever they are, and, like, negotiate back. And I was like, that's so crappy. I love this one. I want to do this one. What are you talking about? Also, like, ew. Like, I don't know. The whole thing. I know it's a whole thing that people do, but I was just like, this festival is awesome. It totally fits our film. It's coming up soon. And, of course, I'm just going to say yes. I don't know. There's a weird prestige hierarchy. Like, let's say we premiered at something that was a higher prestige, quote unquote, festival. Like, it could just be totally lost. It could play on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. and be totally lost. So, I don't know. I really just think people need to think about their individual goals. Like, it was a perfect place for us to premiere. And that whole thing is just kind of a little gross, I think, honestly. But it is easy to get sucked into it because festival culture exists in every media in the arts. Like, there's art fairs, there's music festivals, there's theater festivals, there's writing, like there's festival culture has like, I don't know, I would argue it's sucking the lifeblood out of a lot of a lot of media because festivals often present themselves as 
quote unquote opportunities, right? This opportunity that exists across the arts where it's exposure, like the prestige festival is supposed to give you more exposure. And in some cases that works, but to your point, like it's very easy to get lost in the shuffle in those huge festivals where you're competing with studio executives instead of other filmmakers. And I feel like that's true in every area of the arts. Either way, be clear on what your goals are before you start making these deals. Yeah. When you look ahead, having learned what you've learned from that first feature, how do you define success at this point in your career? With my films, I do think it's like, I do think of how many people have seen it and and how much they loved it. And then also like um, how much creative control I had. So I think Final Cut is crucial. We talked to someone early on who was potentially considering coming on as a funder and they wanted Final Cut. And I thought, forget it, especially because the way that they pitched our movie back to us, I thought was gross. <laughs> they said, oh, this small town with people with dreams, but they'll never get out of it, like waiting for Guffman. I was like, I actually love these people and have spent five years making a movie about them and think they're amazing. And I'm not bringing on a funder who wants to recut it, who get final cut and then make fun of the people. I mean, that would have been the absolute worst case scenario. So yeah, it's weird. It's hard when you have an amorphous thing of success like that. It's a lot easier to be like, my movie will make X amount of dollars, but um, it's a lot more fulfilling. I mean, I got an email from a guy who was like, you know, I live in a town of 100 people in North Dakota and we couldn't be more different, but you know, like this has made me think about like what I have in common with like people all over and who live in the city and I we both love this place and this just warmed my heart and made my day and I bought it for everyone for Christmas. I don't it's like come on. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. So, what are you working on next, Allie? Do you want to plug anything? I'm really excited about my current project, actually. I'm working on a podcast, a short podcast with my friend Harvey, who is a childhood friend that I went to summer camp with. And we wrote letters back and forth during our junior year of high school. And we wrote about being queer in code so that if anyone found them, they wouldn't find out. And um, it's just kind of like a time capsule of the mid, late 90s. And I'm just so glad that I have them. I feel like if I was just a few years younger, I wouldn't even have these letters. Um, so anyway, the podcast follows Harvey and I reading them for the first time today, many years later. It's called When You're a Jet. And yeah, it should be out by the time this podcast comes out. Thank you so much, Allie, for taking the time to have a conversation with me. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. As usual, we'll have links to Allie's film, her podcast, When You're a Jet, and lots of other things we talked about in this episode in the show notes on our website, which you can find at theanswerisnoshow.com. Thank you so much for listening in to our first season. It's been a great project to work on, and we're grateful to have you along for the ride. Please do also keep sending us your stories of saying no to bad gigs. You can email us or record a voice memo and send it to theanswerisnoshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Answer Is No Show. Thank you again to all of our listeners. Please share the podcast with anyone and everyone you think might be interested in these stories. And remember, collectively saying no to bad gigs can help us all get to a better yes. The Answer Is No.